Well, good evening. Uh, we come to uh, lecture number nine of uh, 60 something. And uh, we, we're going to look this evening at uh, God uh, as self existent, self sufficient, and eternal. Uh, these uh, three uh, concepts. Uh, we've got some more big words, uh, words that you can try out and use in a, an email uh, or two in the course of the, of the week. Uh, we're going to look at a uh, couple of ideas tonight, uh, one especially uh, in relationship to God and time that um, again may, uh, may come across to you as somewhat uh, odd and strange and uh, you sort of wonder why uh, why would theologians uh, make uh, decisions about these issues? Um, uh, you notice that Isaac Watts, he's uh, using Psalm 102, we just sung together uh, the third verse of that uh, psalm rendition by Isaac Watts. Uh, Eternity with all its years stands present in thy view, an eternal present. To thee there's nothing old appears, to thee there's nothing new. Well, you sang that as though you meant it. Uh, Now we're going to test to see whether you actually mean that, whether you actually do believe uh, what Isaac Watts has just written, uh, that there is no sequence of time uh, in God, that there is no yesterday or today or tomorrow. Uh, There's no becoming in God. God lives in uh, a realm that is outside of time. That's been standard uh, orthodox uh, belief until, as you might guess, uh, recently. Um, Turn to page uh, two, uh, and uh, we're going to begin uh, with uh, God's uh, self Existence, and uh, we introduce here another word, it's an important word, aseity, uh, the aseity of God. Now, that's not a word uh, that you probably use uh, in day to day speech. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be a surprise if you haven't used that word in the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, so, I've given you a definition of it, uh, at least a metaphysical definition of aseity. Um, existence originating from and having no source other than itself, uh, coming from a Latin word, asiatas, meaning uh, from oneself. God is from himself. He's not, uh, he's not derived from anything else. He's not a subcategory. He's in a category all by himself. Uh, so what this uh, doctrine is addressing is the being of God or now I'm making up words, but the isness of God. God is. Uh, and then we want to ask ourselves the question, what does, what does is mean? <laughs> yes, you remember someone uh, suggesting that that was an important question. It depends what is means. Um, what does is mean in the sentence, God is? Uh, God is not a being derived from another source. God is a being in itself, or perhaps in himself. He's outside of any categorization uh, that we can uh, think of or suggest in relation to um, the universe in which we live. He's outside of that. He creates the universe. He creates Um, all other categories of existence. But he is in an existence all by himself. Uh, Again, this is uh, the uh, creator-creature distinction. There is the creator and then there's creation. And those two are distinct categories. So God doesn't owe his existence to anything outside of himself. Uh, The question that often arises perhaps in, um, in uh, conversations perhaps with, uh, with unbelievers. Uh, the apologetic question, who made God? Uh, well, sometimes we, we uh, 
we imply that sort of question. What was there before the Big Bang? If, uh, if everything has a, a source, if everything has an origin, and if the ultimate origin of the universe, as uh, scientists seem to think, is the Big Bang, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying let's suppose that that argument is true. What, what is there then before the Big Bang? Well, the question... Who made God is a question that is invalidated by the premise that God is. He exists. There is no no source for which the product, the result, is God. God is. He doesn't need anything or anyone to explain his existence, nor does he need anyone or anything to maintain his existence. Uh, A little quotation from Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, uh, who taught uh, apologetics at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in the 1950s, 60s, early 70s, uh, made a huge impact uh, on uh, Christian philosophy, uh, whether you're for Van Til or against Van Til in apologetics is beside the point. But uh, uh, here's a sentence from Cornelius Van Til. Uh, we must take the notion of self-contained, self-sufficient God as the most basic notion of all our interpretive efforts. Now, you need to think about that sentence for a minute. Uh, the very least, Van Til is saying that this idea of God's self-existence is perhaps the most important idea of all in uh, constructing um, an epistemology, in constructing uh, the way we know things, the way we, we understand the existence of this universe and how this universe came into being. The self-existence of God is the most fundamental thought. So we're not, uh, we're not although this is, uh, this is fairly abstruse, uh, this isn't the sort of stuff that we talk about over the water cooler in the course of a day, uh, but this is, um, this is fundamental stuff. This is, uh, this is basic and, it's, and it's, it's particularly important. Um, the Westminster Confession uh, in the second chapter, Doctrine of uh, God, uh, makes a reference to the aseity of God. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. Uh, It's uh, doing uh, uh, several variations on the same thought here on the aseity of God, that God exists in himself. He's not derived. He doesn't uh, depend on anyone or anything to maintain his being. He is in and unto himself all-sufficient. Now, uh, where does all this come from? Uh, And it comes from God's own self-disclosure. We are, of course, wholly dependent on God. God If God is in a category all by himself, we cannot, by searching, find out God. We are are dependent on his revealing of himself, pulling back the curtains just a little and giving us a glimpse uh, of himself, uh, which he did, of course, in Exodus chapter 3 when he revealed his uh, divine name, his covenant name to Moses in the course of the burning bush in Exodus 3, and then further explanation of that given in Exodus chapter 6. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, God has told Moses to, uh, to go back to uh, Pharaoh and, and to be the instrument by which to bring the people of Israel uh, out of their bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses, understandably enough, uh, says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Uh, in Hebrew thought, of course, God's name defines who he is. 
And the name God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. His name is, I am that I am. And then he shortens it to simply, I am. And the verb, I am, uh, sounds in Hebrew like, uh, like the, uh, the uh, pronunciation of the divine name, Yahweh. Uh, that, that sounds like the verb to be. So, so God's covenant name in the Old Testament is Yahweh, or as you are probably more familiar with, Jehovah, although the pronunciation of that name is, has, has been uh, uh, something of a, of a debate, um, partly because of superstition in uh, the centuries that followed uh, Exodus about actually pronouncing uh, God's name, and, uh, and now scholars believe that it ought to be pronounced uh, Yahweh. Uh, which sounds in Hebrew like the verb to be, I am. God is, God is I am. Not, not, not so much the past and not so much the future, but he exists. I am the God who exists. That's actually quite provocative, given that uh, Moses was going back to Egypt where they worshipped a whole pantheon of gods, including the sun and the moon. Uh, and, God, and Moses, of course, will write Genesis and say, this God, Yahweh, created the sun and the moon. Uh, the sun God and the moon God that the Egyptians worshipped were actually created, brought into being by Yahweh. God created the sun. God created the moon. So writing Genesis to a, a people that were actually in Egypt at the time uh, w- would, would have been very provocative. God, the problem with the pantheon of Egyptian deities is... They don't exist, which is a big problem. God, on the other hand, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his name is I Am. He exists. Now, um, uh, the, the name, uh, this, is, uh, this is Jim Packer explaining uh, the divine name. The name, in all its forms, uh, proclaims his eternal, self-sustaining, self-determining, sovereign reality. That supernatural mode of existence that the sign of the burning bush had signified. The the bush burned, but it wasn't consumed. It, It continued to exist. The bush, we might say, was God's three dimensional illustration of his own inexhaustible life. Then come down to the New Testament and to a very important statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, his life isn't derived, it's not sustained by anything outside of himself, he has life in himself. You know, we, 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 uh, you know, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Our life is maintained and originated by God. God's life is self-sustained and self-originating. So this is Jesus now speaking to his disciples. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And what do they sing uh, in heaven? Uh, in the glimpse uh, that we see in Revelation 4 and 5 of uh, angels and archangels and, uh, and extraordinary creatures in heaven. And this is what they sing. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, uh, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Right? All of creation exists by the will of God. Uh, But God exists in himself. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, He he is in a category then uh, all by himself. The self-existence or the um, aseity of God. Then a related concept, uh, the self-sufficiency of God. Um, That God is not uh, dependent on anything um, external to himself for the perfections of his own being. The burning bush 
the fire did not need uh, the material of the bush uh, to sustain itself. Uh, that three-dimensional picture of the um, self-sufficiency of God. God burns, but he isn't dependent on the bush for the burning. It's just a visual aid uh, to explain to us uh, God's self-sufficiency. Interestingly enough, this is, a, this is a, an aspect, a doctrine that Paul taught in Athens uh, to uh, unbelievers, uh, to a Gentile community, a uh, Greek world, uh, with their pantheon of gods. Uh, and he's talking to them about the God whom they do not know. Paul at Athens saying, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He has no need of anything from outside of himself to sustain himself, to keep himself going. So he's unoriginated, he exists within himself and by himself, and he is maintained by himself. The self-existence and the self-sufficiency um, of God. Now, what in the world is the use of this doctrine? Now, a doctrine can be true even though you can't see what it's useful for. That's uh, important to keep in mind. It's not... It's not true just because you can see some practical consequence for it. Um, it is true because God reveals it to be true. Um, but there are practical, there are very uh, pastoral uh, things that emerge as a consequence of us thinking about the aseity of God. That God is, God is in a category all by himself. You know, man's mind, Calvin said, is a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, in the Institutes, in Book 1 and, and uh, Chapter 10, Section 11, he, 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 he writes that man's mind is forever uh, producing idols. Uh, we turn that which God has made and we turn it into an idol. We turn it into a god and we bow down and we worship it. Uh, and those idols may be, may be external to ourselves or they may, be, they may be within ourselves. They may be ideas. They may be even our own self. We make ourselves a god. We put ourselves, ourselves over God and more important than God. And the doctrine of the aseity of God reminds us that God is, is, is the most fundamental thing of all. He is the most fundamental being of all. And our existence is wholly derivative of his existence. Now that should produce um, awe. God is awesome. Now... I think I've said before, and, and I will keep on saying it, you may only use the word awesome uh, for God. Right? Ice cream is not awesome. Blue, blue, blue bell ice cream, creamy and rich as it is, it's not awesome. Right? If, you, if you say blue bell ice cream is awesome, what word are you going to use to describe God? Because God is better than blue bell ice cream. God fills us with a sense of awe. It takes your breath away. It gives you the holy tremors. You're in the presence of someone who is in a category all by himself and, and to whom you owe your existence. The very breath that is in your body owes itself to him. Uh, the aseity of God is a statement about his incomprehensibility. Not that God cannot be comprehended at all. He can. But what we know of God, we know only a little. We, we, we only know a little glimpse of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children. And, and what we know and what we understand of God is only a little. God cannot be pigeonholed. He is beyond our understanding. It should make us uh, stagger uh, with awe. You know, it's where Job was brought to uh, in the book of Job. 
uh, in chapter 40, um, Job lays his hand upon his mouth. You know, Paul takes up that thought, doesn't he, in Romans, when he says that every mouth may be stopped. You know, you need to be brought to the point where you, where you don't talk anymore. Because God is so bigger and so much greater than you can ever imagine. He doesn't owe you an explanation. Like that was Job's fundamental problem, that he felt God owed him an explanation. And God didn't owe him an explanation. And God didn't give him an explanation. And Job is brought to the point where he puts his hand upon his mouth. Right? He's given a glimpse of the aseity of God. You know, he's asked all those questions, isn't he? You remember in Job chapter 38, uh, who is this who, uh, who asks questions, who talks without knowledge? Uh, and then he says to Job, uh, dress for action. You know, Job has been asking for a fight. He's been asking for an epistemological fight. It's a fight about ideas, about the understanding and value of things. And so there's a contest, isn't there? Um, and, and God says, says, I will ask the questions, you will provide the answers, and you already understand this isn't fair. Because Job is the one asking the questions, and he's expecting God to provide the answers. But God turns the table, and he says, I'm going to ask the questions. You provide the answers. And question number one is, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And it's a a knockout blow. It's like like, uh, Cassius Clay, as he then was, and uh, whatever that English fighter, Henry whatever his name was, and it's, uh, it's a knockout blow in the first round, and it's over. Right? You've paid colossal amount of money for tickets to go and see this fight, and you're hoping at least it's going to go to six or seven rounds, but it's over in the first question, because Job has no answer to it. And eventually he lays his hand upon his mouth. So awe, uh, worship. Uh, What is it that draws out the worship of heaven? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Um, We'll we'll come to an explanation of what that means, but it's a statement about the eternality of God for sure. Um, But it brings out worship. But it also brings out stability. Uh, And think about a couple of Psalms here. Psalm 46 and, and the psalmist in Psalm uh, 46 uh, is looking at the world, he's looking at the cosmos that he, that he knows, and it's an unstable cosmos. Uh, the earth is giving way, the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam. And what gives the uh, psalmist uh, stability in the midst of all that? It's the doctrine of a seity. Be still and know what? That I am God. I am I am. You're worrying about the future, you're worrying about the past and whether it's going to catch up with you. And God says, I am, I am the I am. I exist. I am the eternally being one. Uh, or the 90th Psalm, uh, 90th Psalm is written by Moses, uh, finding similar refuge in the aseity of God from everlasting to everlasting, uh, you are God. God has no beginning or end. Uh, In every generation, Uh, this is a a truth that provides believers with um, stability. Right, so these uh, these doctrines, they may sound uh, a little strange, and uh, the the term aseity is not a a term that we use on on a day-to-day basis, uh, unless, like Mark uh, McDowell, you've written a PhD thesis in which your uh, topic was the aseity of God. Um, But here it is... um, uh, in the scriptures, uh, God, God exists by himself. And it's a source of awe and worship and stability. When everything else is shaking, when everything else is giving way. Uh, I could only watch five minutes of that debate last night and I got so cross I had to turn it off. Um, and uh, I, I, I just, I'm sorry, I just could not bring myself to watch any more of it. And... Um, 
and the, the, whole, the whole foundation is shaking, but God is the same. God is the I am that I am. Now, uh, we're going to turn the page to God is eternal, and uh, if you thought that was uh, deep, we're going a little deeper. God is eternal. Because God is self-existent and self-sufficient, uh, we speak of him as eternal. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean by that that he is not bound in any sense by the limitations of space and time. Space and time are part of the created universe. So with respect to time, we speak of God as everlasting. With respect to space, we speak of God as omnipresent. Now we'll talk about omnipresence later. I'm making a note of it here, um, but I'm I'm not going to talk any more about that tonight. That'll come up uh, next week, omnipresence. I, I simply want to focus on the eternality of God with respect to time. And, and what does that mean? The eternality of God. God is eternal. Uh, it's something that Isaiah, Isaiah uh, speaks about a lot. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall utterly fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He is the everlasting God. He is the eternal God. God alone has immortality, 1 Timothy 6.16. The immortal God, Romans 1.23. Or Jude 25. The only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Uh, Interesting uh, phrase, before all time and now and forever. Uh, These are just uh, ringing the changes, of course, on the assertion, the proposition, that God is eternal. God is everlasting. Now, um, what does that mean? Remember that we've said now a number of times over the last few weeks as as we've been thinking about the attributes of God, the, the distinctive characteristics of God, that God accommodates himself. He, he talks to us as creatures. Uh, there's no way that we can understand God as he is in himself. What we understand is his accommodated language. It's like an adult speaking to a little baby. And you get down on your hands and knees and, and you say some, some things that you'd be embarrassed about if you were to be recorded and it would be played back among your friends. Right? No one understands the concept of infinity or eternal. Now, if you think that you do, uh, think about this. That an average galaxy contains between... 10 to the power of 11 and 10 to the power of 12 stars. In other words, galaxies on average have between 100 billion and 100 trillion stars. Astronomers estimate that there are approximately 100 billion to 100 trillion galaxies in the universe. So how many stars are there in the universe? 10 to the power of 22 or 10 to the power of 24 10 sextillion and 1 septillion stars in the universe. Now, do you you grasp that? No, you don't. It's big. It's it's very big. No, 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 no. It's very, very, very big. Have you grasped it yet? No, of course not. Or or there are more than, uh, there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. And yes, I did make sure that that wasn't some, some um, what's the expression, uh, urban legend thing. Um, yes, although it needs to be defined. But if you, if you were to gather all the grains of sand from all the beaches in the world and count them, there are more stars in the universe. And again, can you grasp that? No, I can't. It's big. It's enormously big. So, so we don't grasp what eternity actually means or what eternal actually means. 
Now, again, when the Bible says God is everlasting or, or that he is before all time and now and forever, it's, it's using language with a view, not perhaps first of all to asserting something that you would put in a systematic theology. It's, it's asserting something for the benefit of pastoral theology. It's trying to help us. It's trying to, uh, it's trying to minister to us in some way. So Psalm 90. Uh, people die, they're swept away in a sleep of death, but God is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, God is above the realm of death. God is above the realm of, uh, of decay. Uh, he is in charge of the, of the universe. He controls from a position that is over and above death and decay. Or Psalm 102, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established. And so on. The eternality of God is being used there in a pastoral way to bring a sense of comfort in a world that's uh, decaying. And bodies that are decaying. Now, the next obvious question then is to ask, well, what does eternity mean when we apply that to God? And there are two answers. Uh, One, as you can see, number one there is timelessness. And then if you turn the page, actually turn a couple of pages past all the pictures to page 10, middle of page 10, uh, the other one is called temporalism. So one is timelessness and the other is temporalism. Now, let's let's see if we can flesh these out a little. Uh, We're going to talk about timelessness. That the eternality of God... That God is eternal in relation to time means that he exists in a realm that is timeless. Uh, It's also known as eternalism, uh, and that word will will occur in the notes here uh, further on. Now, I want to say before I I, I go through this, I want to say this uh, has been and remains the standard orthodox position. Uh, It is, as you shall see, uh, the position of uh, the great giants uh, of the church. Uh, That doesn't make it true, but it's something that we need to think about, especially as postmoderns that we dismiss uh, history and tradition and so on, that the traditional um, uh, argument here for the eternality of God is that he exists outside of time. This isn't just a, a Protestant view. It's not just a Reformed view. It's, not, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a view that was held by Augustine, as we shall see. It was a view that was held by Thomas Aquinas, uh, the principal theologian of the Roman Catholic, medieval Roman Catholic Church, um, and uh, a position held by uh, leading Reformed uh, scholars in our own time. So let's, uh, let's look at this uh, idea. God is outside of, of time. Now, if you're... If you're balking at that a little bit, if you, if, you, if you find that hard to take in, I think it's probably easier for all of us to take in that God is outside of space. Right? God doesn't have, a, a, doesn't have spatial dimensions. You can't measure him. You know, how big is he? How many miles wide? How many miles tall? Um, he, he's not made of atoms or molecules or gravitational forces. Uh, God is spirit. He creates the physical universe. Now, um, we aren't talking here about space. We're talking about time. God is, God is eternal in the sense that he is timeless. He is outside of time. So time then is a function of the created order of things. Um, most of us will accept that if we accept basic um, post-Newtonian Uh, science, physics, uh, that uh, space and time are intimately related. Um, Ever since Einstein, uh, physicists uh, believe, and it's the standard orthodoxy in science, that uh, space and time are part of a continuum. Uh, They're intimately related. It's part of the created order of things. Uh, Euclidean physics uh, saw the universe as basically three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Uh, Einsteinian physics uh, views time as part of a single uh, manifold along with space. 
relativistic uh, theories argue that uh, gravitational forces can slow down time. Uh, if you watch the Science Channel, for example, uh, and you might have... Uh, I, I tuned out of the presidential debate, I'm sorry. I went to the Science Channel and there was a program about planets, and actually it was about uh, the space-time continuum and how, uh, how uh, the, the presence of certain uh, large objects can actually slow down the process of time, uh, according to Einsteinian uh, physics. Uh, those of you... Uh, Math majors, sorry, like myself, uh, past life, distant past life. Uh, but I remember studying string theory at one time. I, I, I couldn't tell you what it is now, but, but in the past I studied string theory. And uh, string theory predicts anything from 10 to 26 dimensions. Uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, Joseph uh, Lagrange and uh, the so-called Lagrange transformations uh, of the space-time continuum. You may be lovers of Star Trek, uh, and in which case all of this stuff is part of the plot line of almost every single episode of uh, Star Trek uh, Enterprise or Voyager or whatever. It's, uh, th this is the stuff that makes that program so interesting. Now, uh, let me say uh, that uh, we shouldn't think of time as a container uh, in which things take place. Uh, and therefore, we should not think of God as inside or outside the container. Time is a function of space. Um, now, critics will argue that uh, timelessness uh, is something uh, that belongs to Greek philosophy. Uh, and that what has happened in theology here is that it's borrowed from uh, Greek philosophy, from Plato especially, and, uh, and theology has got warped. Uh, in the process, uh, something that uh, Plato says in uh, Timaeus, the past and the future we wrongly attribute without thinking to the eternal being, for we say of it that it was and shall be, but on a true reckoning we should only say is. That there is no past and there is no future in God, there is no becoming in God. This is, uh, this is Plato speaking here. Well, Augustine uh, uh, <laughs> God did not create the world in time. Uh, Augustine argues he created the world with time. Um, in the confessions, in the eternal, uh, nothing passes, but the whole is present. Uh, Augustine's view was that God sees everything, just like a, just like a pageant that may be passing forth uh, before you with a, with a long series of, uh, of things. Uh, and if you, if, you, if you have a point in a line, there's a sequence. They pass in sequence. But from your perspective, you can actually see the whole pageant uh, in, a, in a constant is rather than a before and an after. Uh, and that's uh, the kind of thing that Augustine is uh, uh, is arguing. And in, in Chiridion, uh, he says, God lives in an, in an ever today. Uh, Boethius, 5th uh, century, 6th century, um, e eternity is the complete uh, possession of eternal life all at once. Uh, Anselm, uh, we're in the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury, neither yesterday nor today nor tomorrow thou art, but simply thou art outside all time. Right, that's Ansel. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, next century. Eternity is an instantaneous whole. While in time there is a before and after, so time and eternity um, differ. James Henley Thornwell. Who is James Henley Thornwell? Has anyone ever heard of James Henley Thornwell who stood on this very zip coat uh, in the last century? Uh, extraordinary. Um, uh, handsome looking fellow uh, James Henley Thornwell uh, was skeptical about the traditional formula and about what it was saying uh, God's eternity remains a mystery to us well that's true Hodge uh, all external events are ever present to the mind of God he sees how they succeed each other in time as we see a passing pageant, all of which we may take in, in one view. Actually, he's uh, citing from Augustine. Uh, Hodge was unclear about whether there might be succession of thoughts in the mind of God and whether the, the idea of succession of thoughts was something that was bound to a space-time continuum.
Well, I could talk about uh, Bavinck uh, or Oscar Kuhlmann, uh, Christ and Time, a very important book in the 20th century. Uh, drop down to Paul Helm, Paul Helm, contemporary uh, uh, Calvinist philosopher, um, uh, Two books in particular, uh, Eternal God and uh, Four Views of, uh, uh, of Eternity, in which he provides the traditional, uh, the traditional view, and then his entry in the Stanford uh, Encyclopedia uh, of uh, Philosophy. Uh, now, Helm's argument is that timelessness is consistent, uh, and it's the only view that's consistent with other attributes of God, like, like unchangeability. If, if there was sequence of time in God, then, then there would be a tomorrow that he as yet is unaware of, right? It hasn't happened yet. So it would add to his knowledge. So you, can, you couldn't say God is omniscient if there are things that haven't yet happened in God. And there are events, the knowledge of which he is at present unaware of. Uh, so so uh, attributes like unchangeability or transcendence uh, or even simplicity, that God is without parts or, uh, or omniscience, these, uh, these would be inconsistent if God is not, uh, if not, if God is not timeless. Um, look at the quotation uh, that begins, God can be fully actual only if eternalism... Uh, timelessness is correct. If God really exists in the year 1900 and really exists in the year 2000, then in the year 1900 he merely has the potential to exist in the year 2000, but he doesn't yet actually exist in the year 2000. But God is supposed to be totally actual, to have no unrealized potential. So temporalism must be wrong and eternalism correct. Now remember, Paul Helm is a philosopher, uh, and this is the kind of thing philosophers uh, do. Um, but he's arguing from uh, a philosophical point of view, uh, as a, a, a reformed Calvinistic theologian that Paul Helm is, uh, for the idea of God being outside of time, uh, existing in a, in a realm that is timeless, uh, rather than within the space-time continuum. Now, others, uh, especially in the 20th century, have uh, called into question uh, this view uh, and uh, have adopted a view of, known as temporalism, that God exists in time and he experiences time. And, and so God experiences a before and an after. Um, they criticize the traditional view because uh, they say things like, uh, it's an easy thing to say, you know, that it's platonic or that it's Aristotelian. In this case, it's platonic. Uh, it's, it's, it's philosophical rather than theological. That's an easy charge to make, and it's made all the time about every conceivable kind of doctrine, uh, that this is just being borrowed from the Greeks. Um, but, but that needs to be looked at. I'm, I'm only interested in the theological uh, side of it rather than the philosophical side of it. Um, Nicholas Walterstorff, a name that might be familiar to you, contemporary, uh, similar kind of figure to Paul Helm, only on the other side of this uh, particular debate. Um, uh, and uh, he criticizes it because um, eternalism or timelessness portrays a God who is lifeless, is how he puts it. Uh, perhaps the most vehement attack on the traditional doctrine has come from uh, William Lane Craig, uh, who teaches at Trinity uh, Evangelical uh, Divinity School in Chicago and uh, has, uh, has argued uh, strongly and vociferously against the traditional view uh, and argues in favor of uh, temporalism. And I'll let you, um, I'll let you read uh, what he has to say. So... Um, let me jump to, to 13, because I, I, I want to do something uh, in the time that we have. Uh, the critique. Uh, it's one thing to suggest that God is conscious of the passing of time. Another to suggest that he experiences this in the same way that we do. Right? And I, I would want to make that distinction. Um, and then uh, the third thing I say down in the critique uh, it's argued that our image-bearing status reflects God's experience of time and space. 
you know, that because we experience time and space, that, that's an essential feature of the image of God in us. But that argument can work the other way around too, because we, we sometimes experience timelessness. Oh yes, time can drag. Time can slow. When you're in love, and you're looking at each other with those cow eyes, you know, and time just seems to stop. Uh, there are pieces of music that, uh, that seemingly slow down time and almost there's a, there's a point in a Bruckner symphony uh, in one of his uh, slow movements where he, he almost brings time to a stop. Um, so so, so it, the, the, the argument is also, can also work in the, in the reverse uh, order. Uh, John Frame argues strongly that God is atemporal, he's outside of time, in his transcendence but temporal in his imminence. Uh, and that's a, a fairly new and novel way of, of looking at it, I think, and uh, it may have something going for it. But the traditional view, uh, as uh, Frame argues, in, the, in terms of the transcendence of God, God is atemporal. Now, I'm, I'm hoping this works because I wanted to play for you uh, a little talk that C.S. Lewis uh, gave on this issue. And I'm hoping it's going to work. In these talks, I've had to say a good deal about prayer. And before going on to my main subject tonight, I'd like to deal with a difficulty some people find about the whole idea of prayer. Somebody put it to me by saying, I can believe in God, all right, but what I can't swallow is this idea of him listening to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I find quite a lot of people feel that difficulty. Well, the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it comes in the words at the same moment. Most of us can imagine a God attending to any number of claimants, if only they come one by one, and he has an endless time to do it in. So what's really at the back of the difficulty is this idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, that of course is what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there's room for precious little in each. That's what time is like. And of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future, isn't simply the way life comes to us, but is the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe, and God himself, are always moving on from a past to a future, just as we are. But many learned men don't agree with that. I think it was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he hasn't got to listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning to the end of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has infinity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. That's difficult, I know. Can I try to give something not the same, but a bit like it? Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her book. Next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, 
who've got to live in the imaginary time of the story, there's no interval between putting down the book and hearing the knock. But I, her creator, between writing the first part of that sentence and the second, may have gone out for an hour's walk and spent the whole hour thinking about Mary. I know that's not a perfect example, but it may just give a glimpse of what I mean. The point I want to drive home is that God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the lump. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you'd been the only man in the world. And now I'll get back to my main subject. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self, and that this process goes on very far inside. Well, I can't, uh, I can't improve on that, so... Um, there's C.S. Lewis uh, giving us, I think, a little glimpse of uh, what timelessness in God may mean uh, in the arena of him listening to all of our prayers uh, in, in, our, in our experience of it at the same time. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we come before you once again. Our minds are stretched and our affections drawn because you are in a category all by yourself. You are the I am that I am. You have life in yourself and you have given to the Son to have life in himself. All of our life is derived. We are created beings, created in the realm of space and time. We do not experience things as you experience things. We thank you, Lord, that you know everything all at once. And we bless you that you hold the past and present and future in an eternal present. There is no uh, event in the future that can come and uh, shock you. So uh, write these things, Lord, uh, upon our hearts once again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.